0: Before we get into another episode of the Jude Three Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to jude3project at P.O. Box Two Six Two Zero Six. Jacksonville, Florida 32226 Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project Podcast. Enjoy!
1: Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Heber Brown. Welcome, Dr. Brown.
2: Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me.
1: Thank you for agreeing to do the podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you today about um, the subject of food justice, um, something that I know you're very passionate about. But before we get into that, just give our audience just a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure, sure. I'm blessed to pastor of the Pleasant Hope Baptist Church in Baltimore. Uh, this year, I'll celebrate 10 years as the pastor of this great congregation. Um, prior to, well, prior to pastoring, I had a background in um, legislative advocacy and mentoring and uh, research. My undergrad degree is in psychology. I did a psychology degree at Morgan State University and was blessed to attend the Virginia Union University, the Samuel D. Wood Proctor School of Theology. And I got my doctor of ministry degree at Wesley Theological Seminary in D.C. Um, I've been active in uh, various lanes of community activism over the past 15 going on 20 years and have learned so much as I've engaged in both locally across the nation and even uh, around the world.
1: Mm -hmm. Awesome. For those who don't know uh, what this concept of food justice is, can you just shed light on that for our audience?
2: Yeah, well, if we look at, uh, really, I could back up and ask people just to examine consciously their food environment. Uh, Oftentimes, we don't have conscious thought of the food environment and the ways in which we engage not only with food, but with food sources. Where you're getting your food from and all the factors that contribute to um, where you get your food from, all the things that also challenge, present challenges, rather, in terms of where people get their food from. And so what we've recognized is and long recognized is that in the food environment, especially as it has become more corporatized and more about big business and putting profit over people gaining uh, access and agency over their food system that has become more corporatized. There's been challenges that have arisen um, where people who have economic means, uh, it's easier for them oftentimes to get the food they need to have a a healthy uh, life and a high quality of life. And to those who don't have money or means, it becomes more of a challenge in many ways. Um, And so what we attempt to do in the way of food justice and food equity is engage those challenges, not just in the way of providing food for people, but also supporting and nurturing the agency of people To provide for themselves as it pertains to food. Uh, We've often heard the quote, and many, I mean, you know it, many people know it, uh, you give a person a fish, they'll eat for a day. uh, You teach them how to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. And so the work that I do is not so much in the food charity domain, providing emergency food, food to families and to people, which is important work. But my call and my sense of vocation is wrapped up, Uh, in food sovereignty and land sovereignty, uh, particularly as it pertains to black people, that we should have agency control over our food system uh, so that we are not utterly dependent on the benevolence and mercy of other people to provide for our basic needs.
1: Mm -hmm. And that is so, so important and vital work. So I appreciate that work that you're you're doing. I hear a lot about food deserts in our, in our African-American context. Is that one of the, the factors that led you to create um, the program that you have?
2: Well, initially, um, the where I pastor it would not be considered a food desert. And I'm using quotations with my fingers because I'm grateful for how the, uh, the understanding around the food environment has even pushed us beyond that term. I'll I'll speak to in a moment. But um, I found out when I started pastoring that I was in the hospital a lot visiting members of my church who were there because of diet related issues. And in addition to prayer and scripture, I wanted to do more to uh, minister to them. And so I have a more of a holistic view uh, of, of ministry and my approach to ministry is more holistic. And one of the things that, Uh, came to uh, my attention and the Lord really illumined for me was the fact that our church owned a plot of land uh, right near the front door of our congregation and we hadn't been doing anything productive with that land but cutting the grass and shoveling the snow and raking the leaves Uh, but we saw and the Lord showed me how that little plot of land just 1,500 square feet could have a um, a purpose greater than maintenance. And so that's how we started growing food at our church to provide fresh, healthy, locally grown, sustainably grown food, chemical-free food to our members. Um, and it's only blossomed and grown now beyond our church. And now I've founded, and I'm the executive director of an organization called the Black Church Food Security Network which helps, in part helps other churches do the same thing. Let me say a quick word about food deserts and the evolution that has happened there. What we realized is that that term really is in many ways a misnomer because um, deserts are natural events and phenomena. There is nothing unnatural about a desert. What we also recognize is that there is something very unnatural and unjust about the dynamics that keep our community separated from the food we need. And so uh, I'm preaching a sermon soon. I'm giving you a heads up now. So if y'all hear it later, just say amen anyway when I preach it. <laughs> but I got a sermon a sermon coming uh, called Redeeming the Desert because the desert didn't do nothing to nobody. Uh, what we actually have now as we've evolved in our understanding, we don't call it a food desert anymore. We call it food apartheid because there were political factors, there are public policy and planning factors in play that created the dynamics that we Mm
1: have. And for those who don't understand those policy factors, can you just give us a little on that? Because I think it would help people see um, what you're saying a little bit more.
2: Sure. So somebody made the decision not to have grocery stores in certain communities. That didn't just happen by coincidence or happenstance their policy through policy and planning and corporate uh planning and development decisions were made about what communities would receive uh grocery stores and what communities would not receive them even when it comes to the distance to fresh food sources decisions are intentionally made uh with respect to that and when you recognize that there is bias and discrimination uh, found within the body politic as it relates to legislation that gets passed, as it relates to public policy, as it relates to planning in your local community, then nothing that you see in your neighborhood should be considered a coincidence. So when you have a saturation of corner stores, liquor stores, check cashing in places, um, you know, and the like, and you have an absence of uh, banks, credit unions, grocery stores, high quality schools, that is not by accident, um, and that should not be seen as, for instance, some um, some curse upon black people who just can't organize themselves well. Uh, when you walk around your community and look at who owns what and who's selling what and who's in control of what, that has more to do with racist and unjust policy than it has to do with any fake curse uh, on black people or any... D- deficiencies in our ability to govern ourselves
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: yes that is so so true um when we talk about this I, I was looking on your website and you had a tab why the black church because your your organization focuses on um organizing the black church um why for those who haven't been on your website yet uh, why the black church
2: yeah the black church oh <laughs> my goodness um <laughs> The black church has given me so much and I really feel like I'm indebted to the church Uh, when it comes for instance, when it comes to public speaking. I didn't go to Toastmasters. Uh, I had Easter Sunday poems that trained me how to stand in front of people and I had to give the welcome and I had to. You know, speak in front of a congregation when it comes to my confidence, it was church mothers and deacons helped groom, grow and raise me up. When it comes to my village, it was a congregation that enveloped me. Right. And so personally, I have so much to be grateful and thankful for when it comes to the churches of my upbringing. Were they perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, But there were places where uh, I found my sense of belonging, my sense of being. Now that's me on a personal level. Now let's broaden that out to a systemic level, right? Looking broader than just individual. When you look at the church as an institution, it has no match and no equal as it pertains to institutions that have brought tangible uh, uh resources to the black community for more than 300 years the black churches have been providing support in the way of mutual aid legislative advocacy training ground professional development go down the line uh, as we say uh, the black church has receipts uh, and way more receipts than many of the other wonderful organizations that work on behalf of or in the midst of the black community the black church has no equal and no rival and the way of producing concrete material uh, supports, you can point to colleges and universities today and a black church up give it birth. You can point to uh, I'm sorry, credit unions and banks and formerly mutual aid societies and black churches help give them birth. You can point to clinics. You can point to hospitals. You can point to community development corporations. You can point to elementary schools and black churches help to give it birth. And really, if you want to really crack crack bad, we can go to entertainment. Many of your favorite entertainers and hip hop, rap, R&B neo-soul go down the line from John Legend to Beyonce had their start in somebody's Black church somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so in light of that kind of strength, and in light of the fact that there's no institution, and you can tell I get happy about this, (laughs) uh, there's no institution and network of institutions that has the inventory that Black churches have in terms of land, the black church collectively is the largest land owner in black america the black church collectively has more commercial kitchens than the naacp core and any other organization the baltimore i mean the urban leagues of your city wherever churches have commercial kitchens land classrooms 15 passenger vans uh, we have mo- we have now uh, multimedia centers where if we wanted to, let NBC, ABC, and CBS uh, uh, talk bad, uh, we can start our own network in our own sanctuaries because oftentimes we have cameras sitting right in the church sanctuary. You have audio, you have video. So anyway, I, I can go on and on about that. But my point is, when you organize those resources, and steer them in the direction of the empowerment of the African-American community it can create and it has created lasting results for more than three centuries and when we are dead and gone I'm talking about you and me this this institution if the Lord delay is coming this institution will still be here uh, to carry that banner forward so for me I tell all activists I can get my hands on uh any young people now say well i don't like the church for this that or the other i say listen i get all of that i'm i'm with you there's some things about church i hate with the passion there's some things about the bible i still don't understand there's some things about god that i still don't agree with right i don't get it but this is what i know in terms of a starting point for the empowerment of our people as a collective either you're going to go through a church and work in partnership with the congregation or you're going to have to turn to some oftentimes non black organization and beg for their support. Now, I don't know about nobody else, but I'm not turning to GoFundMe or any other white led organization to help bankroll my movement to help Im- improve the lot of my people. I'd rather, with dignity and pride, stand amongst my own and grow and organize for the betterment of everybody rather than beg somebody else for help that my community is already organized for itself.
1: Amen. Um, for, for those who are listening, uh, we have a lot of pastors that listen that, are, that are black pastors that pastor black churches. Um, and they're saying, Dr. Brown, I want to, uh, get involved with this. I want to, uh, I want to start what you're doing in Baltimore in my community. How can they do that?
2: My advice really for any church leaders or pastors would be uh, just to do an assessment of your community. That's basically what I did. My background is in community organizing. So basically, I just did some asset mapping of what my community has. Oftentimes, when it comes to addressing needs in the black community, we've been programmed and conditioned and socialized to start with our deficiencies. Start with, oh, we don't have children that have quality schools and all oh, we got this many people hungry and all, you know, all the woe is me stuff. Right. Because oftentimes, even when it comes to grants and working with foundations, you have to build the case for why the financial support is needed. So you start with all the bad stuff. Right. We flip the script on that, because when we consider all the things that we do have, we recognize that there's far more on the table than not on the table if we would just would organize uh, the stuff that we have in our hand. So start with asset mapping, just like I walked outside of my sanctuary and I walked around my community and I realized we had 1500 square feet of land that we could use for a greater purpose than just cutting the grass and shoveling the snow. Walk around your community, use Google maps or some other mapping technology and put the big map of around you know, your community, put that on the screen and see the big picture. Where are the other anchor institutions that could possibly align their resources to what you're doing? Where are the other churches in proximity to where your church is? And is there opportunity for collaboration to address a common need that all of your members but both churches are going through? Is there a, uh, another um, person in the community that is a champion for an issue but perhaps doesn't have the institutional backing to really expand what they're doing to a greater degree? And they would be helped by having an institutional stage as the one that you could provide and so i I would say that real quick too there might be some pastors who say well i don't have time to do all that i get it Uh, i don't sometimes it's it's just by the grace of god really that i'm able to be a full-time pastor and also be the executive director of the black church food security network helping other churches to start gardens on that land only god i mean between sermon writing bible studies traveling the country teaching on seminary campuses organizing in local communities only God has given me the strength to do this. And so I get you if there's a pastor who say, I just don't, I just don't have the time. Oftentimes you don't have to be the person, but there might be a person in your community that just doesn't have the resources. They don't have place to meet. They don't have a commercial kitchen. They don't have a church bus. And you can align your resources around and behind that person or that community organization so that there'll be common and shared benefit. Uh, in that way as well. Finally, I would just say, uh, check out BlackChurchFoodSecurity.net. Go to our website. We specialize in helping Black churches do this work. And I say Black churches on purpose. We're called the Black Church Food Security Network, not the Church Food Security Network. There are a number of organizations out there dealing with any range of food equity, food sovereignty. Uh, you know, There's a number of groups out there doing it. My analysis of that environment though is that there are not many who have an ear and a sensitivity toward the particularities and the character of black church communities. They have no clue as how to organize in a black church community. They couldn't tell the first lady of a church from the first lady, former first lady of the country. You know, they don't get that. They don't They don't get church mothers. They don't get you know, Terry services, they don't get revival. They don't get call and preachers doc, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so being one who is a, not only a pastor, but a third generation preacher, I was raised in the church. I know that some of the resources out there need to be customized to fit our feet. And so what I really, and what we really specialize in is arranging, organizing um, their information and financial resources in such a way that it fits our feet and applies to our context.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. That is amazing. And I think that is so needed. Uh, I am uh, steeped in the black church, still in the black church. And I, I think that you know people discount the power that we have. And I love what you're sharing because it shows that we really have power to make things happen. And oftentimes we don't realize the power that we possess. Um, I love the fact that you're also working with black farmers um can you tell uh, our audience a little bit about
2: that oh my lord yes i would be glad to listen <laughs> to me black farmers are such a valuable um uh, but but challenged uh community we need our farmers family we need our farmers and i know i'm talking to a lot of people who are foodies you got pictures of food all over your instagram page I'm all I'm asking you to do is swim upstream from your favorite meal. A farmer was involved in providing that food. And so if you are a foodie, if you are, you know, you're somebody who loves food. Listen, I'm with you. I love food, too. But I started swimming upstream and saying, "Who? where are the hands that are involved in growing this food? Where are the workers, food, uh, those who are working in the food system who are transporting this food, all that kind of good stuff. And so when it comes to black farmers, I I position myself as a cheerleader and a friend for black farmers, Uh, because really, you know, as a whole, uh, ethnic background and race aside, farmers make up about 1% of uh, the national population. 1% of the nation is farmers and the average age is in the 60s, 62, 63 years old. What that means is that these people who are burdened with the full weight of feeding a nation, if they're not supported and if we don't create pipelines for the next generation of farmers, we're going to be in a really bad way, much, much worse than where we are right now. So when you take that 1% of the nation is farmers, and then you look at that 1%, a fraction of that 1% are Black farmers, because Black people in so many ways, one, were ran off the land, we were ran out of the South through terrorism, white racist terrorism, or we left the South in search of better jobs and opportunities once mechanization came into play and agriculture started shifting and changing. And there's a lot of trauma associated with agriculture and land and farming when it comes to black people too. Uh, But I'll just say very clearly, listen, the land never enslaved us, cotton never enslaved us, corn never enslaved us. Let's not put on cotton and land that which the white power structure did to our people. Land didn't do it, cotton didn't do it. And if we go back and support the black farmers who are still working the land, who are growing cotton, Uh, who are doing wonderful things with corn and watermelon. What we may find is we'll develop a mutually beneficial partnership with Black farmers uh, in the South, in particularly, and the Midwest, um, and connect those farmers with the needs of the North, the Mid-Atlantic, and the Northeast. They need markets to sell their food. I've been in North Carolina recently, Lisa, and I met with farmer co-ops or representatives of farmer co-ops all over eastern North Carolina. And I've talked to farmers who have healthy food going to spoil in their fields just because they don't have a market to sell it in. I've heard from farmers who grow free range eggs. That means no chemicals. That means, you know, no, no egg that's been pumped with steroids or whatever, free range, healthy, organic eggs. And because they don't have a market to sell their eggs in, they're feeding the eggs to the dogs and, and, you know, animals that just run through the land. They just throw the eggs out. So, they don't have a market. They don't have support and opportunity. And in more North and Northeastern Black communities, uh, we don't have the food we need to be healthy. And so, we have hypertension and diabetes and all these health challenges because we don't have the food we need. And we're forced in many ways to provide for ourselves and our family off of corner store and dollar store food items. We need food. They need markets. Well, when you connect markets, and you connect black communities up north and you connect black farmers and you connect black churches, then you have a powerful and dynamic partnership that can change in real time the material conditions of the black community. I'll say the final thing and I'll shut down because I can get real preachy and revivalist right here. (laughs) (laughs) I can, but I'll say this. There is a role and a place for legislative advocacy and political reform. And I applaud those who are working at every level of government to change laws, get bills passed and create a a different uh, situation for our people, I applaud that. At the same time, I think Lisa, we make a great mistake when we feel like the only way To change the material conditions of our community is to register to vote and to get bills passed. That's not the only way. And we need to bring some balance to the conversation so that we can see some of the other ways. And I am of the strong conviction that owning your own food system as a community, or at least having greater share over the control of your food system, opens up economic health and wealth opportunities in real time. It doesn't have it's not dependent upon who's in office, what president's in there now. Do we like this one? Does this one like us? Listen, a sweet potato is a sweet potato. And if you can connect with black farmers who has acres and acres, I mean tons of sweet potatoes and tons of fresh eggs and collard greens and kale, listen, that can do far more in some ways than some of the other legislative things, or at least equal to some of the other bills and legislative things that can be done as well. So I am praying for, even as I'm a senior pastor in beginner farmer school myself, I am praying for more and more churches. I'm praying for more and more younger black people to reconsider agriculture. For whoever controls the food controls the people. If they can control what you can put on your plate, at the end of the day, they control you, and so let's see the ways in which we can work for our empowerment by also not not putting politics away. But it, you know, some people are saying for the next two and a half years you might have to put it away, given what's <laughs> going on at the federal level. In the meantime, for those who might be bored <laughs> who work in a federal level policy and y'all bored now because y'all ain't got nothing to do, meet me on the farm. And we can help change things on the ground, no matter if there's a D or an R in the White House.
1: Amen. That is so, so powerful, uh, Dr. Brown, because so many of us are begging Trader Joe's to come to our neighborhoods. Are begging, uh, Lisa! Uh, the- <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. <laughs> are begging these uh, these grocery chains that are, quote-unquote, more healthy to come in our neighborhood. But if they come in our neighborhood, that money still goes to them. But if we partner with farmers, as you said, that keeps the money in our hands.
2: Absolutely. The name of the game, uh, Lisa, is control. Control. Not just access. For far too long, we have been satisfied with access. Oh, we have a Black person in the political sphere. You have access then to a political sphere. And that's fine. there's There's a place for that. But at some point, because we've seen the shortcomings of the access merry-go-round. At some point, you gotta wanna start controlling uh, the game as opposed to just being happy that you're at the table. Why not build your own table? I don't, I'm sorry, I I got children and I got a church full of children who I'm blessed to pastor. I also run a freedom school at my church Uh, and I want these beautiful black children to know that they don't have to contort themselves to fit into somebody else's program for us. I want them to know that God has given them the same genius, brilliance, and wherewithal to construct our own systems and control the basic needs that all of us have, whether you're born in the North, the South, East, or West. Black folk everywhere need to eat. Black folk everywhere need a house. Black folk everywhere need clothes those basic needs which i call the original politics create a lot of potential for us to organize and to a greater degree control the things that we need instead of begging other people uh, and being happy with the crumbs they provide
1: amen amen uh this is so so amazing i'm glad to have you on because I think it's going to light a fire under those who hear and those who just simply didn't know. I know there's pastors that listen in North Carolina and they'll probably hear this and say, man, I didn't even know that there was Black farmers in my state who I could partner my church with uh, to to be a hub a resource and think about the changes that could happen potentially because this information is shared. And then you talked about the health problems. My my great grandparents suffered from diabetes. My great, my grandparents have diabetes, <laughs> you know? So I understand how it affects our community on a personal level. And I think that it's so, so important that we understand that, you know, some of these things we wouldn't have to pray away or try to attempt to pray away. Come on. Uh, if we would, uh, eat the food that our black farmers are providing.
2: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more.
1: So thank you so much. How can people get in, um, get in contact with you, share your website and your social media handles for them?
2: Sure. Check us out at black church Again, that's black church That's our website. You can also uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, Ah uh, Heber Brown at Heber Brown H E B is in basketball E R last name Brown like the color. Uh, follow me on Facebook as well. I'm gonna say follow me. I'm having a friend request issue uh, right now. At least I got thousands. Some people want to be friends, and I don't know these people, so I'm trying to. I'm try, <laughs> I'm trying to be a little bit more careful with my friends list on Facebook, given all the things going on with Facebook right now and the data and all that kind of stuff. So I say follow me on Facebook again heber brown h e b e r and i think i am on insta- i am on instagram as well heber brown i think the number three with a name like heber i ain't getting away too far so just google heber h e b e r brown and you'll find me
1: awesome and what I'll do is i'll put your website on our resources tab on our on our uh our our website because i think you know people need to to know this stuff so they could uh equipment and power in their churches and and impact their communities. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown.
2: Well, thank you for the wonderful work you're doing with your program. I pray that it goes far and wide and that you continue to help bless our community by rethinking what it means to be in ministry today. Thank you.
1: Awesome, thank you so much, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew Three Project Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.ju3project.